Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. So having looked at the first book of Samuel, it makes sense to look at the second book of Samuel, but Samuel is now dead, and yet the book is still named after him, Mike. Yes, and that's because originally 1 and 2 Samuel were originally just one book, as we said in the previous episode about 1 Samuel. It was only when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, in a translation called the Septuagint, because it was traditionally translated by 70 scholars, for Jews who'd been scattered from Israel and who could no longer speak Hebrew, so they they needed to be able to speak it in the world language of the day, Greek. And when the Hebrew text was translated into Greek, uh, the translators decided to break the story of Samuel, or the book of Samuel, rather, into two sections. Uh, And that was then continued by a guy called Jerome, who produced the Latin translation, the Vulgate, and it stayed with us today. It's been slightly confusing because the the Septuagint originally called these two books the first and second book of the kingdoms. Mm -hmm. And Jerome, when he translated it into Latin, called it first kings and second kings, which meant that our first kings and second kings then had to become Third kings and fourth kings. So if ever you see that in old translations of the Bible, that's why. But what we've got here is the ongoing story. Split, it has to be said in a slightly odd place where it is, but the ongoing story of the transition from the old theocracy where Israel had been led a theocracy by God alone to the monarchy. We've seen that process in 1 Samuel through the prophet Samuel, through Israel's first king, Saul, the best that God could choose according to their standards, but who wanted to put his kingship above God's kingship, so was rejected. How he was replaced by David, that 10-year process of being on the rise, but on the run, hiding caves, hills, forests, even among the Philistines, And 1 Samuel ends where really 2 Samuel begins in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel with Saul taking his life. And as we come to 2 Samuel, the story opens up with a messenger coming to tell David, not that Saul has taken his life, but that he found him wounded and killed him, obviously hoping that David would say, well done, boy, here's a reward from you. But what he'd not counted on was David's integrity, who says, how dare you lift your hand against the Lord's anointed and actually has the guy executed. So the story is linked through that event of Saul's death. And now, of course, the way is clear for what had been prophesied over David, that he would become the king of God's people. That way is now open. And it's that story that we see in 2 Samuel. So 2 Samuel concentrates on David as as king, but is he king uh, straight away? Well, yes and no. Obviously, God has said to him through the prophet Samuel that he is to be the king. And actually, in God's eyes, he is because he's been anointed to be that king by the prophet Samuel, now long dead, of course. But chapter 2 of 2 Samuel opens up by David not being presumptive. 
With Saul dead, he can obviously see the way is now clear, but there's this lovely part in 2 Samuel chapter 2 where he actually prays and says to God, shall I go up now to the towns of Judah? It's a way of saying, is this my time, God? And God says, yeah, it is time. And even then he says, where shall I go? And God says, to Hebron. And so David goes up there and he is anointed king, but king only over the southern and smaller half of the nation. So not all the 12 tribes? Not all the 12 tribes. He just becomes king over Judah and Simeon in the south. It's the nation known as Judah at this point. Whereas it's Saul's son who is left to continue ruling over the northern tribes. What's happened here is there's been a split on the old tribal divisions. So the tribes of the south, where David comes from, want him. Saul came from the north, and so the tribes of the north want his son and his successor. And how does Saul's successor do in the north? Well, he doesn't do very well at all. He's really quite a weak king and is eventually assassinated by some of the leaders in the north because he is so weak. So in chapter 4, we find Saul's son by the mouthful name of Ishbosheth, and you really need to get your mouth working to get round that one. Yeah. Ishbosheth is assassinated oh. by his own leaders, who then come to King David and say, in effect, the way is clear for you. So by chapter five, we find that the leaders of the tribes of Israel, the northern half, come to David and say at Hebron, uh, they get all religious at this point and say, we know really that, you know, you are the one whom God anointed to be king. Uh, after all, you're the one whom God said would shepherd my people Israel. It's funny, they weren't saying that seven years earlier, were they? Hmm. And it is a period of seven years. So for seven years, David has ruled as king over Judah in the south. And only when Ishbosheth is assassinated seven years later and the leaders come to him to say, be our king as well. And now... So remember, we talked in a previous episode, 10 years of waiting mm. and on the rise and on the run. And now another seven years before he finally becomes the king of the whole of the nation of Israel, as God had promised him. So that's 17 years that have passed since that oil was poured over his head by the prophet Samuel. So under his kingship, he unites the the two groups of tribes, if you like, successfully? Yes, absolutely. And he does a very, very clever thing because he realises that one of the things that needs dealing with is the sort of tribal rivalries. That's why there'd been this division in the first place. So one of the first things he does is he realises, actually, it would be really wise to have a new capital because, after all, Hebron, where he's been ruling, is in the south. And those northerners are going to say, oh, there you go. You see, South getting favoured again. Sounds a bit like the United Kingdom today, doesn't it? Yeah. So what David does is he decides to have a new capital. And there is a little city right on the border between the old north and south called Jebus, inhabited by Jebusites. And this was one of those cities that Israel had failed to be able to conquer when they had entered the promised land and it had lived there as a, a little enclave among them. And it was perched high on top of a hill, almost impregnable. 
But David discovers a water tunnel, a water shaft from the city that they used to go down to get water from their water supply outside the city. Sends men up the water shaft, conquers this city from the inside and makes this city known as Jebus, also known as Salem, also known as Jerusalem, his capital city. Now, here's a wise move. He now has a brand new capital right on the border between the old north and south that had belonged to neither north nor south and that therefore would be acceptable to both. And of course, from this point on, Jerusalem will become hugely significant in the history of God's people, not least when in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, David moves the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, from where it has been to this new capital of Jerusalem. To make it the the new centre for everyone. For everyone and for everything, because it is now not only his capital, it is, as it were, God's capital, because the Ark of the Covenant symbolised God's presence. It goes a bit wrong, by the way. There's a great story in chapter 6 where they bring the ark back to Jerusalem. How do they do it? They put it on a new cart, which seems like a really holy and special thing to do, doesn't it? Why did they do that? Because when the Philistines had captured the ark back in 1 Samuel and they'd had nothing but trouble from it, they'd sent it back on a new cart and perhaps they'd remembered that. But of course, God in his word in the law had said, no, when you move the ark, it's only to be carried by the priests and the Levites, and it was to be carried on poles that were permanently attached to the ark. And so there's that little moment of disobedience. And when the ark stumbles, is almost about to drop off the cart, when the oxen stumble, this guy called Uzzah reaches out to try and stop it falling, understandably, and he's struck down dead. And David is mortified and he thinks, my goodness, What is this ark that I'm bringing back? But he suddenly then realises it's because he brought it back, not how God had said. And it's almost like God is saying right at the beginning of his reign, David, you can't be a king like Saul. You know that, don't you? Who thinks he knows best, who puts his word over my word, and David gets it. So this time the ark is brought back properly as God worked, prescribed with great rejoicing and dancing. And now Jerusalem is both the king's capital of the nation and God's capital in the earth, this place where his ark is established and where ultimately the temple will be built, of course. I can imagine that David would think to himself, great, this is the new centre, this is where everything's going to be focused, it's all going according to plan. Did that continue to be the case? Well, Jerusalem certainly would become a very significant place, but even more important than Jerusalem as such would be what God wanted to do out of and in this place. And one of the really key passages when we're reading to Samuel is chapter seven, where God makes a promise to David. Now, David feels that it's really important that He has a a place that's suitable for God's holy ark. And 
So he he calls for Nathan the prophet and he says, you know, look, here I am living in my palace that's built of cedar and uh, the Ark of the Covenant still in a tent. Well, actually, that was okay. God said it was supposed to be in a tent. And he has this desire to build a wonderful temple for God. And Nathan says, yeah, well, that sounds good to me. Why not do it? But in the night, God speaks to Nathan and says, no, no, that's not what I want at all. And he brings this word to David from God. And basically, God says in chapter 7, Listen, I see your heart. I see what you wanted to do for me. But it's me who made you the king. I was the one who called you from nothing. And I'm the one who's going to do this. And actually, David, you wanted to build a house for me? No, I'm not going to let you do that. But here's my heart for you. I'm going to build a house for you. Not a physical bricks and mortar house but a house of descendants. And in this word in 2 Samuel 7, uh, God says to David, he makes him a promise that when your days are over, I'll raise up your offspring, establish his kingdom. There's a reference to Solomon. I'll be his father. He will be my son. Yeah, I will discipline him because the king's not above my kingship, but my love will never be taken from him as I took my love away from Saul. And here's the powerful promise that it climaxes in. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So here is the promise of a permanent royal house descended from David that came out of David's heart to build a physical house. For God. So God kind of put the brakes on the temple idea. And I'm just wondering what lesson we can learn about getting ahead of God. Ha, that's a really good question, isn't it? Because, you know, what I love about this story is it came out of a good heart. This is not David being arrogant. We've seen already in 1 Samuel that he was chosen because he was a man after God's heart. He loved God. He wanted to do things God's way. But in his eagerness... He's here wanting to do more than what God actually wanted to do at that point. And he is running ahead of God. And so it really does bring home to us the importance of no matter how good our ideas are, how godly our ideas are, that we do need to keep bringing them back to God and checking it out with him. Because, you know, his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And sometimes he wants to do things differently. So, yeah, it's a lesson really to to constantly bring even our good actions, our good desires, our godly desires to God to check they're actually what he wants or they're in the way that he wants it. And it wasn't that David's heart was wrong. God sees what's in his heart, but actually what God had got in mind was something a zillion times bigger than what David could have imagined. I mean, who would have imagined? You mean, there'll always be one of my descendants on the throne? And actually, it's even bigger than that, because, of course, as we know from the history now, there wasn't always a descendant of David on the throne physically. The point would come where that line would end, certainly when Jerusalem was conquered and taken into exile in 586 BC, and Israel hasn't had a king and doesn't have a king today. 
But as Christians, we know that that promise was fulfilled in one of David's descendants because Jesus came from the line of David and he is the one who now fulfills that promise. He is the one who's established an eternal kingdom who reigns forever. So it's like God gave him the promise, but even the promise was way, way bigger than David could ever have imagined. So he's come a long way from being that little shepherd boy. My goodness, he has, hasn't he? And he's now the king of the 12 tribes. And a very successful king, because some of these chapters talk about his victories over his enemies and how he's able to establish the kingdom. So successful king, well-established kingdom, godliness at its centre. He was successful in the public realm. Was he successful in the private realm? Ah, well... That's where people so often fall down, don't they? One of the things that I love about the book of 2 Samuel and about the life of David is is that it's such an honest account. And we see David, warts and all. Because if the first 11 chapters of 2 Samuel are all about his successors, to be honest, most of the second half of the book are all about his failures. And yet God still used him which is amazing. And the turning point comes in chapter 11, where we find that well-known story of David and Bathsheba. Some interesting little insights here in this story. The, The story starts out by telling us that in the spring, at the time of year when kings go to war, David sent Joab off to war and he stayed in Jerusalem. In other words, He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Come on, this is the time when kings should be out at war. And, you know, David had got somewhat comfortable, probably a little complacent. Things had gone well. Yeah, I don't need to go out to battle now. I can send Joab to do it. And so he'd ended up staying in Jerusalem. Wrong place, wrong time. And it led to the wrong result because he's out there on the roof of his palace one day taking the air one evening when he happens to look down and over a wall of a nearby house sees this woman Bathsheba bathing. There's no hint in the story, by the way, that she was flaunting herself, trying to catch his eye. Anyone who's been to the Middle East or the Far East where they have these single-storey houses with perhaps some taller houses nearby and often the bathing area will just be behind a wall outside And you can look from a higher wall and easily see over sometimes. And David almost accidentally sees this woman bathing. But instead of turning away quickly, instead of going, oh, he looks and he looks again. How do I know that? Because the text tells us that one evening he got up from his bed, walked around the roof on the palace and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. How on earth did he know that she was very beautiful if all he'd seen was a quick glance? Clearly the implication is he looked and he looked again. You know, we can't stop sin coming our way, but we can decide what we are going to do with it when it attacks. And David makes the first of a whole number of mistakes. He sends for a servant and says, who is that? And the servant says, well, it's... 
Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife, uh, 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 klaxons go off, Mm. the wife of Uriah the Hittite. But David sent for her. And it was the second look that he was a mistake. Absolutely. The first look he couldn't do anything about. The first look, what could you do about? Things happen in life. Sin suddenly appears in front of your eyes. But it was the second look. And the trouble is with the second look, it leads to a third look and a lingering and an inquiring and a wanting to know more. And you know what? I can imagine even David perhaps convincing himself that all he wanted really was just a bit of conversation. You know, he's feeling a bit lonely. Everyone was away and her husband was away at war. What's wrong with just inviting her up to come for a drink and have a little chat together? But of course, it doesn't lead to that. It leads to them sleeping together, her becoming pregnant, David rather than owning up to it, trying to cover it up at first by arranging for her husband to come back from the battlefront in the hope that he would sleep with his wife and so the child would look like his child. But Uriah's got too much integrity to do that and despite David's repeated manipulation in chapter 11, he just won't sleep with his wife and eventually David has to send a message to Joab, his military commander at the front, put Uriah in a dangerous position when we're fighting, pull that the men and let him get killed. That second look has already mushroomed into something very well, serious. Well, it's mushroomed now into what? Conspiracy to murder, we might call it these days. And this is the trouble with sin is, you know, that second look, that following it through, that just a little chat is opening a bit more of the door. I always remember the theologian Martin Luther Uh, had this saying, you cannot stop birds flying over your head, but you can stop them building a nest on your head. And he was thinking about sin there. Sin's all around, but you don't have to invite it home. David invited it home and it it, it just got worse and worse and worse. And he, he tries to cover it up and it all looks like it's covered up. But of course, no matter how well we cover up things in life, There is always one person who sees, and that person is God. And so in chapter 12, we find God sending Nathan the prophet to confront David through a parable. And David convicts himself through the judgment he makes about the parable. And Nathan turns around and says to him, you're the man in this parable. And here we see the big difference between David and Saul. Saul, in 1 Samuel, had always been a blame shifter. Samuel, you didn't arrive on time, so I had to do the sacrifice. Ah, yes, I know we took some of the animals we were supposed to sacrifice to God, but it was the men who did it. What we find in chapter 12 is David simply saying, I have sinned against the Lord. He puts his hands up. Puts his hands up. And that's what I love out of this story. You know, sin can overtake all of us at times, sometimes against our will, sometimes because we are stupid like David was. But what we need to do is face up to it and hold our hands up and say, God, I am sorry. It was me. And because of that, God forgives him and David's kingship continues, unlike Saul, who continually 
blame shifter. So the lesson really for us there is, listen, when we sin, confess it quickly. Trying to cover it up only makes things worse, as David did. It became a terrible situation. And yet when we confess our sin to God, well, as he said to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, he's the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love and mercy, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. There's nothing he can't forgive. And thankfully, David came through. Sadly, the baby, the result of that affair, died, but then David put the things on a right footing by marrying Bathsheba properly and formally. And this time they had another child, the child Solomon, who would one day succeed David as king and become such a powerful king in Israel's history. Because he had these sort of troubles at home, should we say, what was the effect of that on his people? Well, the, the probably the more immediate effect, I imagine among the people, tongues would always wag forevermore. I mean, we're still talking about what happened all these years later, 3,000 years later nearly. But what we certainly see happening is as a result of how he handled that badly, first of all, is the continuation of 2 Samuel really shows us the troubles that David had in his own family life. You see, I think I think his kids saw as they grew up over the coming years that, that dad was a bit weak and they used that and manipulated with that. And so we find a whole number of things. In chapter 13, we find that his son Amnon rapes his half-sister, his sister by another mother, and then Absalom, one of David's other sons, then takes revenge and kills Amnon and has to flee. So you think, my goodness, this is happening under David's own roof. Eventually, David allows Absalom to come back after three years. We read that in chapter 14. But how does Absalom interpret that? As weakness by his father. So in chapter 15, we find Absalom actually starting a conspiracy against his father, starting to win and woo people over, standing at the city gates and looking for people who were coming in and saying, oh, what's your business today? And, and they would tell him the problem they, they would have. And he said, oh, you know, you've got a really good case. It's such a shame that King David doesn't have time to listen to people like you today, isn't it? Mm. You know, if I were king, I would definitely find in your favour. And slowly he starts to subversively win people's hearts to him until the point where he makes a bid for the kingship. And David actually has to flee by the end of chapter 15. The king flees from his own kingdom and is cursed along the way by some of the people as he goes. Why? All because David would not have a firm but loving hand upon his family. So when Amnon rapes his half-sister, he does nothing. When Absalom takes revenge and kills Amnon, he does nothing. All his heart is it's sad that his son's no longer with him. And he had to remember he was king. Come on, there are some laws, there are some rules that need to be enforcing here. And, you know, I've often wondered, he... He was basically a soft dad. They manipulated him. And I, 
I've often wondered, did it come out of the fact that he'd lost that baby to Bathsheba? And pastorally, I've often observed when, when people have lost children, the way that they then deal with the next one, they can often be over soft almost on that one. It's almost like making up. And I've often wondered whether David did that. So this second half of 2 Samuel is, is to be honest, we don't see David at his best. We see him as, as a warts man. And all. Warts and all. A man with clay feet. So David is never set up as Mr. Perfection. He is a man after God's heart. He loves God with all his heart. But he gets stuff wrong at times and he doesn't always handle things at times. But ultimately, God always brings him through because of that heart he has towards God. And how does his life end out of interest? Well, he ends as it goes from 2 Samuel into uh, 1 Kings. So towards the end of his life, David makes another mistake. He wants to take a census, which he's chastised for, because it looks like it was a bit out of pride. You know, how good is the kingdom now? Let's know how many fighting men that we have got. And he actually has to take a judgment from God in the course of a plague and uh, where that plague ends is a place where he will build an altar and where ultimately the temple will be built. And, and so really you're asking for a sneaky preview here, David, of, of One Kings. This is almost like one of those TV programs where, you know, in next week's episode, well, what happens is David does die a good old age uh, in his bed. He's obviously getting very frail by this point. He's got a hot water bottle in the shape of a, of a nice young lady who can keep him warm in bed. And uh, he is able to pass on the succession to Solomon before he ends. So he, he dies in a, a good old age, uh, full of years, and having accomplished so much of what God had designed for him, but certainly not Mr. Perfection by any means. A man after God's heart? Yes, a man who was perfect? No. But a man who knew how to come to God quickly and say, I'm sorry, it was me. And with that sort of person, God can do anything. Mike Bowment has been talking to David Tavener. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.